The Guardian. Ah, fine place. Glorious pile. Frowing walls, tottering arches, dark nooks, crumbling staircases. Old cathedral, too. Earthy smell. Pilgrim's feet worn away the old steps. Little Saxon doors. Rochester is a place that appears again and again in Charles Dickens' writing. It was his favourite town where he wanted to be buried, and he went to school in nearby Chatham. In 1870, he died three miles away from here at Gads Hill Place. I'm John Henley, and in this podcast walk, we'll be taking you around the key sites of Rochester as they appeared to Dickens. We'll start with his formative experiences and progress through to the end of his life. The tour is designed to be taken on location as a guided walk, and it should work in real time. There's also a map you can download to ensure you don't get out of sync. If you're listening at home, the podcast should work as a documentary in its own right. But if you are walking with us, make your way now to the west end of Rochester High Street, at the corner of the Esplanade, outside the Crown Pub. So I'm here now with The Guardian journalist Veronica Horwell, who will be our guide. Veronica, just locate this place for us through the eyes of Charles Dickens. He lived in neighbouring Chatham from the age of five to the age of ten. And he lived there because his father was a minor bureaucrat, a clerk, it's grander than it sounds, in the Navy Pay Office, part of the administration of the Royal Navy. And Rochester represented throughout all his life an older and more stable England, one he got more and more nostalgic for. And tell us how this route then is going to follow the course of Dickens's life. This is the place that he remembered. This is the place that he used in several of his novels to represent an older England. And this is the place he came back to when he was wealthy, relatively, successful, outrageously so and no longer happy he did have a sense that there were good things here things that had belonged to an older order that had disappeared absolutely in the intervening years okay well let's make a start turn away from the bridge now and bear right down the high street walk a very short distance until you come to the Guildhall Museum on your left head inside upstairs into the exhibition until you come to the recreation of the hulks and to get you in the mood for what's there listen now to pip's encounter with magwitch from great expectations ours was the marsh country down by the river within as the river wound 20 miles of the sea my first most vivid and broad impression of the identity of things seems to me to have been gained on a memorable, raw afternoon towards evening. At such a time, I found out for certain that this bleak place overgrown with nettles was the churchyard, and that Philip Pirrip, late of the parish, and also Georgiana, wife of the above, were dead and buried, and that Alexander, Bartholomew, Abraham, Tobias and Roger, infant children of the aforesaid, were also dead and buried. And that the dark, flat wilderness beyond the churchyard, intersected with dikes and mounds and gates, with scattered cattle feeding on it, was the marshes. 
and that the low, leaden line beyond was the river, and that the distant, savage lair from which the wind was rushing was the sea, and that the small bundle of shivers, growing afraid of it all, and beginning to cry, was Pip. Hold your noise! cried a terrible voice, as a man started up from among the graves at the side of the church porch. Keep still, you little devil, or I'll cut your throat! A fearful man, all in coarse grey with a great iron on his leg. A man with no hat, and with broken shoes, and with an old rag tied round his head. A man who had been soaked in water, and smothered in mud, and lamed by stones, and cut by flints, and stung by nettles, and torn by briars. Who limped, and shivered, and glared, and growled, and whose teeth chattered in his head as he seized me by the chin. So, hopefully by now you've made it inside the Guildhall Museum's recreation of a Hulk. If not, you can always pause the podcast until you get there. Head downstairs and you will arrive on the lower decks. There's a floor below that as well. They get worse as you go down. Uh, Veronica, I mean, it's quite an eerie place, isn't it? Those sleeping men in their hammocks over. I mean, they look uncannily like corpses at first glance. What exactly were the Hulks? The Hulks were prison ships. Originally, they were used during the late 18th and early 19th century for our very many prisoners of war. First of all, we had French ones, and then we had French ones plus American ones from the 1812-1814 war in which we burnt the White House. Sorry about that. (laughs) There was nowhere to put them. But one of the ways that the Navy had evolved of storing things, including people was to take a ship that had gone out of commission, beach it somewhere, preferably on a really desolate marsh. Miles from anywhere. And miles of mud from anywhere where the tracks are visible until the next tide. These began to be used within Dickens' own childhood at the end of the Napoleonic Wars as storage places for the many new civil prisoners and also as private prisons Everything about Dickens is always modern. Hmm. For prisoners who had been convicted and were therefore convicts and were about to be sent to the new penal colonies. In Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So Dickens was a child who not only had read everything that he could lay his hands on, mostly stories, he also listened to every story that was told by the hired help in the house, by the friends of his father, Mm. by other children. And he knew all the stories of an older, harsher, more brutal 18th century world, including the stories of the Hulks Mm. and their runaways. Okay, well, let's leave the Hulk now then. We'll head back above deck into the main chamber. Meanwhile, back in Great Expectations, Pip is about to be apprenticed. The hall was a queer place, I thought, with higher pews in it than a church, and with people hanging over the pews, looking on, and with mighty justices, one with a powdered head, leaning back in chairs, with folded arms, or taking snuff, or going to sleep, or writing, or reading the newspapers, and with some shining black portraits on the walls, which my unartistic eye regarded as a composition of hard bacon sticking plaster. Here, in a corner... My indentures were duly signed and attested, and I was 
bound. And here we are in that very same room, the main chamber of Rochester Guildhall. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary space, isn't it, Veronica? I mean, wonderful chandeliers, very ornate ceiling mouldings and huge portraits of the great and the good of Rochester hanging from the walls. Tell us a little bit about it. A guild hall was there to conduct the business of the guilds that regulated the trade of a town. In order to have a trade, you had to be formally apprenticed. That's what Pip was going through. Mm-hmm. And don't think that Pip was the poorest of the poor, by the way. He was being formally apprenticed to a good trade. In the 18th century, that continuation of the 18th century that was Dickens's childhood, being apprenticed to a trade was the beginning of a good, steady, stable, lowish but not poor life. And so Dickens knew this world, the world of mayors, corporations, of guilds and trades and local tradesmen. And he wished they hadn't gone. And Dickens himself, I mean, Dickens was sort of a, a, a rung up from Pip, is that, is that fair to say? Oh. He was sort of a, what you might call the beginnings of a, a middle class. His father had been decently born, I think they would have said. <laughs> Almost a gentleman, except that the definition of a gentleman included the fact you didn't actually have to work for money. And that certainly wasn't true of his father. Moreover, when his father did have money, he managed to roll up debts to a level that would bankrupt a modern banking Hmm. organisation. But Dickens himself was profoundly aware. He was a self-made man. Actually, he was a self-read man. And that he lived, in a way, by his wits. Dickens is a media man, right at the beginning of media as we know them. He invented many of the roles that he came to occupy as a career. They never existed before him. This is a place that he knew and understood but he'd gone beyond that by the time he was 16. He was already past it. So really the dawn of a new age in, yeah. a, in a lot of ways. Excellent. All right, well, let's head out of the Guildhall Museum now. We're going to go downstairs, turn left when you rejoin the high street, and walk down until you see the unmissable clock on the left-hand side. While we're heading there, let's hear Dickens returning to Rochester in successful middle age now in an article called Dulborough Town. How does it happen that when all else is changed wherever one goes, there yet seem in every place to be some few people who never alter? As the sight of the greengrocer's house recalled these trivial incidents of long ago, the identical greengrocer appeared on the steps with his hands in his pockets and leaning his shoulder against the doorpost, as my childish eyes had seen him many a time. Indeed, There was his old mark on the doorpost yet, as if his shadow had become a fixture there. It was he himself. He might formerly have been an old-looking young man, or he might now be a young-looking old man, but there he was. Of course, the town had shrunk fearfully since I was a child there. I had entertained the impression that the High Street was at least as wide as Regent Street, London, or the Italian Boulevard at Paris. I found it little better than a lane, 
There was a public clock in it, which I had supposed to be the finest clock in the world. Whereas it now turned out to be as inexpressive, moon-faced and weaker clock as ever I saw. It belonged to a town hall, where I had seen an Indian, who I now suppose wasn't an Indian, swallow a sword, which I now suppose he didn't. The edifice had appeared to me in those days so glorious a structure that I had set it up in my mind as the model on which the genie of the lamp built the palace for Aladdin. A mean, little brick heap, like a demented chapel, with a few yawning persons in leather gaiters and in the last extremity for something to do, lounging at the door with their hands in their pockets and calling themselves a corn exchange. So hopefully now you're standing underneath a magnificent clock, a quite spectacular affair, vast white thing uh, hanging out uh, halfway over the, the, the high street. Veronica, we just heard Dickens' 1860 article there, Dullborough Town, uh, in which he revisited Rochester um, after spending such a, a happy childhood here. All those places from his childhood, all, all altered beyond recognition. It's, it's heartbreaking stuff, isn't it? It's Dickens that's changed, not Rochester quite as much. The town itself would have been a little altered, but what had changed was that Dickens was inventing, besides Christmas, a nostalgia for the inner child. He was realising that the first things that you know, the first things that you can recall, have a significance that's going to last your entire life. For the rest of your life. Okay, well, let's continue a little further down the high street now. Stop when you come to the Six Poor Travellers House. It's a three-storey white stone building on your left. You can't really miss it. If it's open, go inside. Strictly speaking, there were only six poor travellers. But being a traveller myself, though an idle one, and being with all as poor as I hope to be, I brought the number up to seven. This word of explanation is due at once for what says the inscription over the quaint old door? Richard Watts, Esquire, by his will, dated 22nd August 1579, founded this charity for six poor travellers, who, not being rogues or proctors, may receive gratis for one night, lodging entertainment, and fourpence each. It was in the ancient little city of Rochester in Kent, of all the good days in the year upon a Christmas Eve, that I stood reading this inscription over the quaint old door in question. I had been wandering about the neighbouring cathedral, and had seen the tomb of Richard Watts, with the effigy of worthy Master Richard staring out of it like a ship's figurehead, and I had felt that I could do no less as I gave the verger his fee, than inquire the way to Watts's charity. The way being very short and very plain, I had come prosperously to the inscription and the quaint old door. Now, I said to myself, as I looked at the knocker, I know I am not a proctor, I wonder whether I am a rogue. Upon the whole, 
Though conscience reproduced two or three pretty faces which might have had smaller attraction for a moral Goliath than they had had for me, who am but a Tom Thumb in that way, I came to the conclusion that I was not a rogue. So, beginning to regard the establishment as in some sort my property, bequeathed to me and divers, co-legatees, share and share alike by the worshipful Master Richard Watts, I stepped backward into the road to survey my inheritance. I found it to be a clean, white house, of a staid and venerable air, with the quaint old door already three times mentioned, an arched door, choice little long, low lattice windows and a roof of three gables. The silent high street of Rochester is full of gables, with old beams and timbers carved into strange faces. It is oddly garnished, with a queer old clock that projects over the pavement out of a grave red-brick building, as if time carried on business there and hung out his sign. I was very well pleased, both with my property and its situation. While I was yet surveying it with growing content, I espied at one of the upper lattices which stood open a decent body of a wholesome matronly appearance whose eyes I caught inquiringly addressed to mine. They said so plainly, Do you wish to see the house? that I answered aloud, Yes, if you please. And within a minute, the old door opened and I bent my head and went down two steps into the entry. So we followed Dickens then inside the Six Poor Travellers House. Um, a wonderful building, beautifully restored. Um, sort of a clapboard interior, stuffed full of artefacts, pipes and, and little pieces of furniture that were found during the restoration. Out at the back are a couple of galleried bedrooms where the, the, the travellers slept and a glorious little garden. Tell us a little bit about his, his sort of enthusiasm, his passion for social reform. His idea of social reform was first and last, and with only a difficult interregnum, based on personal charity by wealthy, smallish by our standards, businessmen. Those six little chambers at the back, which were preceded by the several stories of almshouses, which, by the way, are still being used Mm. as almshouse accommodation right now, They were part of a local bequest by a very, very wealthy man, Watts. They were the result of centuries of belief that the local rich had to contribute willingly, not through taxes, to the local poor. This had gone on for centuries. It had uh, failed a number of times. And the gradual failure of welfare to deal with urbanisation and pauperisation led to the great reform movements of the 1830s about which Dickens was overwhelmingly passionate. He hoped they were going to change things for the better. And Dickens, having been the most enthusiastic radical, realised that all you could do was to keep on telling your readers this is the way it is, and this is the way it shouldn't be. The way it should be is if you've got, you've got to give. He arrived at the conclusion that philanthropy essentially had to be the, the key to everything. Philanthropy and education. Mm. Well, now we're off to meet Uncle Pumblechook. 
Head left out of the six poor travellers' house and continue until you get to number 150-154 of the high street on your right-hand side. And en route, we'll catch up with Pip from Great Expectations after his indenture at the Guildhall. When we had come out again, and had got rid of the boys who had been put into great spirits by the expectation of seeing me publicly tortured, and who were much disappointed to find that my friends were merely rallying around me, we went back to Pumblechooks. And there my sister became so excited by the 25 guineas that nothing would serve her, but we must have a dinner out of that windfall at the Blue Ball, and that Pumblechook must go over in his chaise cart and bring the Hubbles and Mr Wopsle. Mr. Pumblechook's premises in the high street of the market town were of a peppercorny and farinaceous character, as the premises of corn chandler and seedsman should be. It appeared to me that he must be a very happy man indeed to have so many little drawers in his shop, and I wondered when I peeked into one or two of the lower tiers and saw the tied-up brown paper packets inside whether the flower seeds and bulbs ever wanted of a fine day to break out of those jails and bloom. It was in the early morning after my arrival that I entertained this speculation. On the previous night, I had been sent straight to bed in an attic with a sloping roof, which was so low in the corner where the bedstead was that I calculated the tiles as being within a foot of my eyebrows. In the same early morning, I discovered a singular affinity between seeds and corduroys. Mr. Pumblechook wore corduroys, and so did his shopman. And somehow there was a general air and flavour about the corduroys, so much in the nature of seeds, and a general air and flavour about the seeds, so much in the nature of corduroys, that I hardly knew which was which. The same opportunity served me for noticing that Mr Pumblechook appeared to conduct his business by looking across the street at the saddler, who appeared to transact his business by keeping his eye on the coachmaker, who appeared to get on in life by putting his hands in his pockets and contemplating the baker, who in his turn folded his arms and stared at the grocer, who stood at his door and yawned at the chemist. The watchmaker, always poring over a little desk with a magnifying glass at his eye, and always inspected by a group of smock frocks poring over him through the glass of his shop window, seemed to be about the only person in the high street whose trade engaged his attention. So here we are then, opposite uh, number 150, the High Street, black and white timbered building. Um, Just to the right of it, before we start, uh, look down Eastgate Terrace. Look up a little bit and you'll see a faded grey and white mural, an advertisement essentially, for, for Pickford's removals. Remember that, we'll come back to it later. For the moment though, back to number 150, there's a plaque outside, City of Rochester plaque, saying that this was the home of Uncle Pumblechook from Great Expectations. Veronica, what was Pip doing here? Uncle Pumblechook was a corn chandler and seed merchant in the town. That was the kind of business the world of locally grown, locally produced, locally consumed, and the money went back into the community, Mm -hmm. that he remembered. And what he's doing here, now that 
is another story. He's on his way to go up in the world, just around the corner. We have an appointment now then with Miss Havisham. So, retrace your steps up the high street a few yards and take the first left, Crow Lane it's called. Follow the road up until you come to Restoration House on your left and pause there. Within a quarter of an hour, we came to Miss Havisham's house, which was of old brick and dismal and had a great many iron bars to it. Some of the windows had been walled up. Of those that remained, all the lower were rustily barred. There was a courtyard in front, and that was barred, so we had to wait after ringing the bell until someone should come to open it. While we waited at the gate, I peeped in and saw that at the side of the house there was a large brewery. No brewing was going on in it, and none seemed to have gone on for a long, long time. A window was raised, and a clear voice demanded, What name? To which my conductor replied, Pumblechook. The voice returned, Quite right. And the window was shut again, and a young lady came across the courtyard with keys in her hand. This, said Mr Pumblechook, is Pip. This is Pip, is it? Returned the young lady, who was very pretty and seemed very proud. Come in, Pip. Mr Pumblechook was coming in also when she stopped him with the gate. Oh, she said, do you wish to see Miss Havisham? If Miss Havisham wished to see me, returned Mr Pumblechook, discomforted. Ah, said the girl, but you see she don't. She said it so finely and in such an indiscussable way that Mr Pumblechook, though in a condition of ruffled dignity, could not protest. But he eyed me severely, as if I had done anything to him, and departed with the words reproachfully delivered, Boy, let your behaviour here be a credit unto them which brought you up by hand. My young conductress locked the gate, and we went across the courtyard. It was paved and clean, but grass was growing in every crevice. The brewery buildings had a little lane of communication with it, and the wooden gates of that lane stood open and all the brewery beyond stood open, away to the high enclosing wall, and all was empty and disused. The cold wind seemed to blow colder there than outside the gate, and it made a shrill noise in howling in and out at the open sides of the brewery, like the noise of the wind in the rigging of a ship at sea. In a byyard, there was a wilderness of empty casks which had a certain sour remembrance of better days lingering about them. But it was too sour to be accepted as a sample of the beer that was gone, and in this respect I remember those recluses as being like most others. So hopefully you've made it now to Restoration House, where Charles II stayed on his way to claim the throne of England. Extraordinary building, a mishmash of styles, but clearly very ancient. And Veronica, this is in fact the Satis House of Great Expectations, isn't it? Yes, he pinched the name Satis House from another house in the town, which is much less forbidding and gothic. This wasn't by the time Dickens knew Rochester a particularly grand house Mm. this had been left behind by time but he's so sensitive 
to locations. He must have been the world's best location scout ever. <laughs> that he understood that it could represent what old money meant. That it could represent a way of climbing the ladder of class very, very quickly through marriage. He did tend to get confused between class, sexuality and money. They got scrambled together in his mind Common all his life. Common confusion <laughs> And this is the place where he set out in the persona of Pip some of the things he had thought as a child. Money and the rise in class to gentlemen that money could instantly buy you, could be conferred upon you. And of course, Pip is under the illusion that his advancement in life is granted to him by Miss Havisham in order that he shall marry Estella. This building, in fact, has a very clear link to Dickens himself, of course. Uh, the author was seen looking very intently at it from the green space across the road just three days before he died as he was working on the mystery of Edwin Drood, his unfinished novel. We'll hear an extract from that in a moment. As we cross into that green space just opposite Restoration House, the Vines, it's called. So, continue through the park... Bear right where the path forks and exit the park in the far right-hand corner. Then you're going to follow the road down towards the cathedral. Ignore a turning off to the left about halfway down. Uh, keep going right the way down to the bottom and eventually you'll be forced to bend round to the left and you'll come to a stop at the end of the street. It's called Minor Cannon Row. <laughs> Minor Cannon Corner was a quiet place in the shadow of the cathedral, which the cawing of the rooks, the echoing footsteps of rare passers, the sound of the cathedral bell, or the roll of the cathedral organ seemed to render more quiet than absolute silence. Swaggering fighting men had had their centuries of ramping and raving about Minor Cannon Corner, and beaten serfs had had their centuries of drudging and dying there, and powerful monks had had their centuries of being sometimes useful and sometimes harmful there. And behold, they were all gone out of Minor Cannon Corner. And so much the better. Perhaps one of the highest uses of their ever having been there was that there might be left behind that blessed air of tranquility which pervaded Minor Cannon Corner. And that serenely romantic state of the mind productive for the most part of pity and forbearance, which is engendered by a sorrowful story that is all told, or a pathetic play that is played out. Red brick walls harmoniously toned down in colour by time, strong rooted ivy, latticed windows, panelled rooms, big oaken beams in little places, and stone-walled gardens where annual fruit yet ripened upon monkish trees were the principal surroundings of pretty old Mrs. Crisparkle and the Reverend Septimus as they sat at breakfast. As, whenever the Reverend Septimus fell amusing, his good mother took it to be an infallible sign that he wanted support. The blooming old lady made all haste to the dining room closet to produce from it the support embodied in a glass of Constantia and a homemade biscuit. It was a most wonderful closet. 
worthy of cloisterum and of minor canon corner. Above it, a portrait of Handel in a flowing wig beamed down at the spectator with a knowing air of being up to the contents of the closet and a musical air of intending to combine all its harmonies in one delicious fugue. No common closet with a vulgar door on hinges, openable all at once and leaving nothing to be disclosed by degrees, this rare closet had a lock in mid-air where two perpendicular slides met, the one falling down and the other pushing up. The upper slide, on being pulled down, leaving the lower a double mystery, revealed deep shelves of pickle jars, jam pots, tin canisters, spice boxes, and agreeably outlandish vessels of blue and white, the luscious lodgings of preserved tamarinds and ginger. Every benevolent inhabitant of this retreat had his name inscribed upon his stomach. The pickles, in a uniform of rich brown, double-breasted button coat and yellow or sombre drab continuations, announced their portly forms in printed capitals as walnut, gherkin, onion, cabbage, cauliflower, mixed, and other members of that noble family. The jams, as being of a less masculine temperament and as wearing curl papers, announced themselves in feminine calligraphy, like a soft whisper, to be raspberry, gooseberry, apricot, plum, damson, apple, and peach. The scene closing on these charmers and the lower slide ascending, oranges were revealed, attended by a mighty japanned sugar box to temper their acerbity if unripe. Homemade biscuits waited at the court of these powers, accompanied by a goodly fragment of plum cake and various slender ladies' fingers to be dipped into sweet wine and kissed. Lowest of all, a compact leaden vault enshrined the sweet wine and a stock of cordials, whence issued whispers of Seville orange, lemon, almond and caraway seed. There was a crowning air upon this closet of closets, of having been for ages hummed through by the cathedral bell and organ, until those venerable bees had made sublimated honey of everything in store. And it was always observed that every dipper among the shelves, deep as has been noticed, and swallowing up head, shoulders and elbows, came forth again mellow-faced and seeming to have undergone a saccharine transfiguration. So here we are at the end of Minor Canon Row. We're looking across at the cathedral over Minor Canon Close. Veronica Dickens had the most extraordinary skill for the use of place in his novels, didn't he? The locations are characters... The weather is a very important player in all his novels. And he used where he set his stories to tell you something about the whole nature of the society in which he was setting them. For example, by the time he wrote The Mystery of Edwin Drood, he had been most of his adult lifetime in the city of London. But he decides to set it back here in Rochester in the calm order of a cathedral city and in setting it in such a place 
he gives us the entire concept of the English detective story in which the perfect surface of an ecclesiastical town with ancient buildings conceals the perfect murder. And sister of Agatha Christie. As sister of absolutely everybody up to the present day. We still look for very small English towns. Mm. Well, we started this walk by locating Dickens as pretty much as sort of the optimistic young reformer. Where are we now in the story of the author's own life? He wrote Edwin Drood back here in Rochester. In the 1850s, he broke his marriage up. I'm not going to say it broke up. He broke it up. And he did so desperately but deliberately. And he also decided that he needed a bolt hole away from London. And that bolt hole was here, back where he had come from. His whole life had darkened. The marriage contracted before Victoria came to the throne, when he was only 24, fell apart. He really didn't have anything in common with his wife by his own admission, except that first belief in romance with an adorable thing in a bonnet and ten children. The first thing he did was to look for hope and youthfulness and a change somewhere else. And and recover some of the sort of the joy and the the joie de vivre, I suppose, of his his earlier days. The crucial problem was the energy. He was the most indefatigable worker of the 19th century, and that is saying something. He was running faster and faster and faster. And this here in Rochester was where he came back to, to be at peace, where he could pursue his relationship, very discreet, never on the premises, with a young actress called Ellen Turnan. Right, let's walk on. We're going to head down past the cathedral, back onto the high street through an archway. Turn right along the high street, retracing part of our route, until you get to Eastgate House, which is a fabulous Elizabethan pile hanging over the high street on your left-hand side. As we go, we're going to hear Dickens' description of Rochester in two of his books. First, thinly disguised as Cloisterham in The Mystery of Edwin Drood, and then as Winglebury, in the Pickwick Papers. And if you want to pop into the cathedral on the way, please do. Just remember to pause the podcast as you do. Let it stand in these pages as Cloisterham. It was once possibly known to the Druids by another name, and certainly to the Romans by another, and to the Saxons by another, and to the Normans by another. And a name, more or less, in the course of many centuries, can be of little moment to its dusty chronicles. An ancient city, Cloisterham, and no meet dwelling place for anyone with hankerings after the noisy world. A monotonous, silent city, deriving an earthy flavour throughout from its cathedral crypt, and so abounding in vestiges of monastic graves that the Cloisterham children grow small salad in the dust of abbots and abbesses and make dirt pies of nuns and friars. While every ploughman in its outlying fields renders to once puissant lord treasurers, archbishops, bishops and such like, the attention which the ogre in the storybook desired to render to his unbidden visitor and grinds their bones to make his bread. A drowsy city, Cloisterham, 
whose inhabitants seem to suppose, with an inconsistency more strange than rare, that all its changes lie behind it, and that there are no more to come. A queer moral to derive from antiquity, yet older than any traceable antiquity. So silent are the streets of Cloisterum, though prone to echo on the smallest provocation, that of a summer day the sunblinds of its shops scarce dare to flap in the south wind, while the sun-brown tramps, who pass along and stare, quicken their limp a little, that they may the sooner get beyond the confines of its oppressive respectability. This is a feat not difficult of achievement, seeing that the streets of Cloisterham City are little more than one narrow street by which you get into it and get out of it, the rest being mostly disappointing yards with pumps in them and no thoroughfare. Exception made of the cathedral close and a paved Quaker settlement, in colour and general confirmation, very like a Quakeress's bonnet, up in a shady corner. In a word, a city of another and a bygone time is Cloisterham, with its hoarse cathedral bell, its hoarse rooks hovering about the cathedral tower, its hoarser and less distinct rooks in the stalls far beneath. Fragments of old wall, saint's chapel, chapter house, convent and monastery have got incongruously or obstructively built into many of its houses and gardens, much as kindred jumbled notions have become incorporated into many of its citizens' minds. All things in it are of the past. Even its single pawnbroker takes in no pledges, nor has he for a long time, but offers vainly an unredeemed stock for sale, of which the costlier articles are dim and pale old watches, apparently in a slow perspiration, tarnished sugar tongs with ineffectual legs, and odd volumes of dismal books. The most abundant and the most agreeable evidences of progressing life in Cloisterham are the evidences of vegetable life in many gardens. Even its drooping and despondent little theatre has its poor strip of garden, receiving the foul fiend when he ducks from its stage into the infernal regions among scarlet beans or oyster shells, according to the season of the year. It has a long, straggling, quiet high street, with a great black and white clock at a small red town hall halfway up. A marketplace, a cage, an assembly room, a church, a bridge, a chapel, a theatre, a library, an inn, a pump, and a post office. Tradition tells of a little Winglebury, down some crossroad about two miles off, and... As a square mass of dirty paper supposed to have been originally intended for a letter with certain tremulous characters inscribed thereon in which a lively imagination might trace a remote resemblance to the word little was once stuck up to be owned in the sunny window of the great Winglebury post office from which it only disappeared when it fell to pieces with dust and extreme old age there would appear to be some foundation for the legend. Common belief is inclined to bestow the name upon a little hole at the end of a muddy lane about a couple of miles long, colonised by one wheelwright, four paupers and a beer shop. But even this authority, slight as it is, must be regarded with extreme suspicion, inasmuch as the inhabitants of the hole aforesaid concur in opining that it never had any name at all, from the earliest ages down to the present day. 
The Winglebury Arms, in the centre of the High Street, opposite the small building with the big clock, is the principal inn of Great Winglebury. The commercial inn, posting house and excise office, the blue house at every election, and the judge's house at every assizes. It is the headquarters of the Gentlemen's Whist Club of Winglebury Blues, so-called in opposition to the Gentlemen's Whist Club of Winglebury Buffs, held at the other house a little further down. And whenever a juggler or waxwork man or concert giver takes Great Winglebury in his circuit, it is immediately placarded all over the town that Mr So-and-so, trusting to that liberal support which the inhabitants of Great Winglebury have long been so liberal in bestowing, has at a great expense engaged the elegant and commodious assembly rooms attached to the Winglebury Arms. The house is a large one, with a red brick and stone front. A pretty, spacious hall, ornamented with evergreen plants, terminates in a perspective view of the barn, and a glass case, in which are displayed a choice variety of delicacies ready for dressing, to catch the eye of a newcomer the moment he enters, and excite his appetite to the highest possible pitch. Opposite doors lead to the coffee and commercial rooms, and a great wide rambling staircase, three stairs and a landing, four stairs and another landing, one step and another landing, half a dozen stairs and another landing, and so on, conducts to galleries of bedrooms and labyrinths of sitting rooms, denominated private, where you may enjoy yourself as privately as you can in any place where some bewildered being walks into your room every five minutes by mistake, and then walks out again to open all the doors along the gallery until he finds his own. Such is the Winglebury Arms at this day, and such was the Winglebury Arms sometime since, no matter when, two or three minutes before the arrival of the London stage. Four horses with cloths on, changed for a coach, were standing quietly at the corner of the yard, surrounded by a listless group of postboys in shiny hats and smock frocks, engaged in discussing the merits of the cattle, Half a dozen ragged boys were standing a little apart, listening with evident interest to the conversation of these worthies, and a few loungers were collected round the horse trough, awaiting the arrival of the coach. Right. Well, hopefully you've found Eastgate House by now. What you need to do is you need to walk into the gardens at the side of it and sort of turn round to the left behind it, Walk into the small paved garden there, look left, and you will see the most extraordinary sight, really, completely unexpected. I mean, it, it's a, it looks like a Swiss chalet. Veronica, what, what is this doing here? It is a Swiss chalet, and it was a present to Dickens from one of his many actor friends, an actor called Charles Fechter, who gave it to him at Christmas 1864 in almost 100 pieces in a 58 boxes that <laughs> it had to be put together and eventually they gave up and let the carpenter at the Lyceum Theatre put it together and if it looks like the model for a very large number of small English railway stations that's because <laughs> the English got absolutely besotted with the idea of carved boards like that and added those twiddly bits up and down Quite the land. extraordinary. And it wasn't erected here first, was it? No. When he bought Gads Hill he paid extra money for a shrubbery on the other side of the main road, just outside. Gadshill, which is not far from here, Gadshill. It's three miles from here. Mm. 
and that was the sign that he made it was that he bought the place and paid the extra 70 quid for the shrubbery mm. and then he built with official permission a little tunnel under the main road so he could leave the house run away from the, all the children who were still living with him <laughs> go under the tunnel come up in the shrubbery go to the upstairs room up there that was his external study and in the last five six years of his life he did much of his writing up there there was a view you could just see down out over the water that had meant so much to him in his life and what did he end up writing there then much of the tale of two cities great expectations our mutual friend this was his quiet place the place where he could go and shut the door. No amanuensis, no housekeeper, of course, no telephone, telegram or interruption from the outside world. Nothing to get between him and his essential concentration on the thing that he did best, which was to put it down on paper and make it live. He was writing in that upstairs room almost to the last day of his life. Well, we're nearing the end of the tour now, unfortunately. Our penultimate stop is going to be the theatre that made such a huge impression on Dickens in his early years here in Rochester. To get there, we're going to retrace our steps back onto the High Street. When you get to the High Street, turn left and walk up as far as the traffic lights at the far end of the street. Pause there and look sort of half right up Star Hill. The theatre was in existence, I found, on asking the fishmonger, who had a compact show of stock in his window, consisting of a sole and a quart of shrimps. And I resolved to comfort my mind by going to look at it. Richard III, in a very uncomfortable cloak, had first appeared to me there, and had made my heart leap with terror by backing up against the stage box in which I was posted while struggling for life against the virtuous Richmond. It was within those walls that I had learnt as from a page of English history how that wicked king slept in wartime on a sofa much too short for him and how fearfully his conscience troubled his boots. There, too, had I first seen the funny countryman, but countryman of noble principles in a flowered waistcoat, crunch up his little hat and throw it on the ground and pull off his coat saying, Dom thee, squire, come on with thy fists then. At which the lovely young woman who kept company with him and who went out gleaning in a narrow white muslin apron with five beautiful bars of five different coloured ribbons across it was so frightened for his sake that she fainted away. Many wondrous secrets of nature had I come to the knowledge of in that sanctuary of which not the least terrific were that the witches in Macbeth bore an awful resemblance to the Thanes and other proper inhabitants of Scotland, and that the good King Duncan couldn't rest in his grave but was constantly coming out of it and calling himself somebody else. To the theatre, therefore, I repaired for consolation. But I found very little, for it was in a bad and declining way. A dealer in wine and bottled beer had already squeezed his trade into the box office, and the theatrical money was taken when it came in a kind of meat safe in the passage. 
The dealer in wine and bottled beer must have insinuated himself under the stage, too, for he announced that he had various descriptions of alcoholic drinks in the wood, and there was no possible stowage for the wood anywhere else. Evidently, he was by degrees eating the establishment away to the core and would soon have sole possession of it. It was to let, and hopelessly so for its old purposes. And there had been no entertainment within its walls for a long time, except a panorama, and even that had been announced as pleasingly instructive. And I know too well the fatal meaning and the leaden import of those terrible expressions. No, there was no comfort in the theatre. It was mysteriously gone, like my own youth. Unlike my own youth, it might be coming back some day but there was little promise of it. So here we are, we've reached the end of the high street. Um, go just past the traffic lights and stop outside Capons the Butchers. Look sort of half right up Star Hill and you'll see there a, a rather splendid edifice about halfway up with a rather faded white portico. Veronica, I mean, that is the actual theatre that we just heard mentioned in that story. It's the place that Dickens revisited, found so changed from his boyhood memories. And it's certainly changed today. It's a set of function rooms now. It looks like a conservative club. Can you give us a flavour of what so impressed Dickens in what he saw here in his youth? He saw everything for a start. He would have seen not just the popular melodramas he seems to have seen Shakespeare as well. He seems to have seen the entire popular repertoire of the time and that popular repertoire had very strong narrative lines, powerful characters and came at you as a series of slightly disconnected scenes. The sets fell down a lot (laughs) and the novels that he so enjoyed reading were novels that were picaresque they wandered from one set of characters and one set of scenes Mm. to the next and he was a child also remember of the oral culture the stories that everyone he knew had told him and that's how he imagined novels should be and that's how he went on writing his novels so that so the experiences that he went through as a small relatively young child in that very theater completely informed the way he wrote as an adult. He was theatre-struck for life, but he also transposed that sense of drama, that sense that an exciting scene was happening before you, to the novel. It's what makes him so fabulously easy to dramatise. Of course, he did the dramatisation for you, Mm. right down to describing exactly the props you needed on the table. (laughs) Right, well, we'll head off now to our last stop, I'm afraid, which is, appropriately enough, the train station. So cross over the road here. It's a very nasty and busy junction, so please be careful. You're bearing sort of half left across the road, continuing along the high street, as it were. Go straight up there and you'll see the station on your left. Pause outside. As I left Dulborough in the days when there were no railroads in the land... I left it in a stagecoach. Through all the years that have since passed, have I ever lost the smell of the damp straw in which I was packed, like game 
and forwarded, carriage paid, to the Cross Keys, Wood Street, Cheapside, London. There was no other inside passenger, and I consumed my sandwiches in solitude and dreariness, and it rained hard all the way, and I thought life sloppier than I had expected to find it. With this tender remembrance upon me, I was cavalierly shunted back into Dulborough the other day by train. My ticket had been previously collected, like my taxes, and my shining new portmanteau had had a great plaster stuck upon it, and I had been defied by Act of Parliament to offer an objection to anything that was done to it, or me, under a penalty of not less than 40 shillings or more than five pounds, compoundable for a term of imprisonment. When I had sent my disfigured property onto the hotel, I began to look about me, and the first discovery I made was that the station had swallowed up the playing field. It was gone. The two beautiful hawthorn trees, the hedge, the turf, and all those buttercups and daisies had given place to the stoniest of jolting roads, while beyond the station, an ugly, dark monster of a tunnel kept its jaws open, as if it had swallowed them and were ravenous for more destruction. The coach that had carried me away was melodiously called Timpson's Blue-Eyed Maid and belonged to Timpson at the coach office up street. The locomotive engine that had brought me back was called severely Number 97 and belonged to S.E.R and was spitting ashes and hot water over the blighted ground. When I departed from Dulborough in the strawy arms of Timpson's blue-eyed maid, Timpson's was a moderate-sized coach office, in fact, a little coach office, with an oval transparency in the window which looked beautiful by night, representing one of Timpson's coaches in the act of passing a milestone on the London road with great velocity, completely full inside and out, and all the passengers dressed in the first style of fashion and enjoying themselves tremendously. I found no such place as Timpson's now. No such bricks and rafters, not to mention the name. No such edifice on the teeming earth. Pickford had come and knocked Timpson's down. Pickford had not only knocked Timpson's down, but had knocked two or three houses down on each side of Timpson's and then had knocked the hole into one great establishment with a pair of big gates in and out of which his, Pickford's, wagons are in these days always rattling, with their drivers sitting up so high that they look in at the second-floor windows of the old-fashioned houses in the high street as they shake the town. I have not the honour of Pickford's acquaintance, but I felt that he had done me an injury, not to say committed an act of boy slaughter, in running over my childhood in this rough manner. And if ever I meet Pickford driving one of his own monsters and smoking a pipe the while, which is the custom of his men, he shall know by the expression of my eye, if it catches his, that there is something wrong between us. When I went alone to the railway to catch my train at night, I was in a more charitable mood with Dulborough than I had been all day. And yet, in my heart, I had loved it all day too. Ah, who was I that I should quarrel with the town for being changed to me, when I myself had come back so changed to it?
All my early readings and early imaginations dated from this place. And I took them away so full of innocent construction and guileless belief. And I brought them back so worn and torn, so much the wiser and so much the worse. So here we are in front of the station at the end of our tour, Veronica. Tell us why the train station is so important in the whole Charles Dickens story. Because it's his marker of time. Pre-train, post-train. It's his way of saying that between my childhood here, when you left this town packed in straw in a coach, and my late adulthood here, when I could have the new train stopped in order that the guests should go to my daughter's wedding, Mm. there is an entire revolution in living an entire revolution in government, in economics, in the speed of life, in what life is for. And it's all entirely encompassed in the arrival of railways in a town he remembered as ambling to the pace of a horse and prepared to travel by coach. And that's it then for this podcast walk. Thanks very much to Veronica Horwell. The Charles Dickens extracts you've been hearing were read by Chris Moran. The producer was Ian Chambers. I'm John Henley. And we leave you with some of the last words written by Dickens, sitting in that Swiss chalet that you've seen, and once again describing Rochester in the guise of cloisterum in the mystery of Edwin Drood. A brilliant morning shines on the old city. Its antiquities and ruins are surpassingly beautiful, with a lusty ivy gleaming in the sun and the rich trees waving in the balmy air. Changes of glorious light from moving boughs, songs of birds, scents from gardens, woods and fields penetrate into the cathedral, subdue its earthly odour and preach the resurrection and the life. The cold stone tombs of centuries ago grow warm, and flecks of brightness dart into the sternest marble corners of the building, fluttering there like wings. great downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio